0: Hello and welcome to episode 170 of the world's first Paul Weller Fan Podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live stream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret, never getting to interview my hero, the legendary singer, songwriter and musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And on this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by another huge, huge talent, singer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist and producer, Robert Howard, a.k.a. Dr. Robert from the Blow Monkeys. We're going to take a journey through his youth, his discovery of punk, politics and the jam whilst living in Australia in the 1970s. He returned home in 1981 and formed the band, leading to so many fabulous albums and singles, Their debut, Limping for a Generation, that breakthrough album, Animal Magic, those hit singles, digging your scene, it doesn't have to be this way, choice right up to their brilliant 2021 album release, Journey to You. Now on this podcast, we're going to hear so many personal stories never told before about his friendship and collaborations with Paul Weller. Whether it's recording a solid bond, being part of Red Wedge, an honorary counsellor for the final live shows of the Style Council, co-producing DC Lee's Slam Slam projects and playing on each other's early solo albums. We also chat about Rise Up Singing, the Monks rose social collaboration that saw Paul and Robert come together for a brand new song in 2022. A real honour to have Robert on the show Let's get into it. Robert Howard, thank you for joining me.
1: My pleasure, Dan. Nice to be here.
0: Delighted to have you join us, because digging into your own remarkable music, the Blow Monkeys, the brilliant solo stuff, the Monk's Road Social, which we'll talk about, all of that I'm really looking forward to talking about, and obviously the connections with Paul Weller, that's, that's why we're here. And this is a friendship that goes back, what, nearly 40 years now, if not more?
1: Yeah, I guess so. I mean, the first time um, I actually met Paul would have been when we were recording... Our first album, *Limping for Generation*, which had been '83, yeah, four years. You're right. Which was in um Solid Bond, the old Philips studio there, Stanhope Place. Pete Wilson produced our first album, so Paul was always hanging around, and we sort of nod and then got to know each other as you sort, you know gently and poco poco as they say here in Spain but yeah you know that that was the first time I'd actually met him.
0: Well we'll talk about this journey and this wonderful friendship as we go through. I want to kick off social media just a few weeks back the 2023 European tour for Paul Weller and it was lovely to see on my socials a photo of you and Paul in Madrid there.
1: Yeah well you know I lived down near Granada in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada up in the mountains really actually and um I knew that he was playing and you know, it's, a, it's about four or five-hour drive. And so a friend of mine who actually knew Paul as well, a journalist called Barry McElhaney, we, we, we jumped in the car and went up to see Paul. And because uh, I hadn't seen him for a few years, I think the last time was at a Stone Foundation gig, it was so lovely, you know, to sort of walk in and just hear, you know, hear his he I, I also hadn't seen the band that he has at the moment you know I hadn't seen them live so a fantastic man saw so a few old friends like Jacko Peak and Craddock obviously you know just lovely to see Paul backstage afterwards you know and hook up because um, it had been a while I
0: guess you're an audience member, right? So where did you watch the gig from?
1: Well, I moved about. I was at the back, as you know, normally, at the back near the bar that I don't drink. And uh and then I moved up to the front. It's quite a lovely venue called the Riviera, which you can sort of move about in. So I went up the front and had a good listen as well. I was just moving about, and, you know, there were songs I didn't recognise. There were things I did. He did some new ones. and You know, like always. I mean, the thing about Paul that I always loved was that he doesn't necessarily give the audience what they want, you know? And I think that's a real strength. Because you know, I've been, I've, you know, I've played with him when that's happened. When you can see that um, they want more jam songs or they want more style cancer songs or whatever, and I really admire the fact that he that he sticks to his guns. Of course, he gives them a few, but mostly it's in it's in the moment. It's the new stuff and what and, and the latest stuff, and I, I really admire that because his audience, especially in the early days, they were quite conservative. He could have got away with just playing old tunes, you know, and it would have been easy. That was the same the other day when I saw him. Just the same kind of mindset.
0: And even on this latest tour, he's played a song that was initially called Take and is now Jumble Queen, which isn't even out yet. I don't know. He obviously likes that tension of actually, I'm going to challenge you as much as like, this is not, like you say, this is not just a greatest hit show, right?
1: Yeah. I understand it myself. You know, it's like. You're either a museum piece or a nostalgia act or you're, you're somebody that still feels alive and there's something dangerous and exciting about playing things that you know people haven't heard. That's a thrill, but it's also anxiety-inducing, it can be. But if that's what it's all about, really. I understand why some bands just go out and play that same set of songs every night that they do and they have done for years. That's okay. But um someone like Paul, you know, he's far too kind of like uh, fidgety and alive to want to just do that. So, you know, I admire that.
0: So you said you had the scene, Paul, for a few years, but we have had the collaboration. So this was obviously all done remotely. So before this meeting, like I say a few weeks back, we had Rise Up singing, Monk's Road Social, this wonderful single, and obviously it was part of the album as well, with you and Paul collaborating. But this must have been done with you at home, him there. How did this work?
1: Yeah, the COVID thing really pushed the technology forward, like the remote stuff. Although I haven't seen each other, we're in touch quite a lot. Paul loves a WhatsApp at two o'clock in the morning. (laughs) And and, and I'm a bit like that myself. So, you know, how about this? Do you think you like this? You know, maybe you could try something with this. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and then he's off and running. And I don't know if it's it's a secret, but I think he's done another version of Rise Up Singing that might be on the new album as well. And then there were songs of his, like Serafina. There was a kind of bonus track somewhere along the line. And we did a version, which I really like, with Matt Dayton's daughter, Romy. It was all you know. A lot of the people in the Monks World thing were people that I had met through working with Paul. So obviously Mick Talbot, Steve White, you know, and there were you know there was that kind of extended family. And then we had to get Paul in eventually because you know that's <laughs> to complete the set. And, it did uh, feel
0: inevitable that he, at some yeah, point he was going to have to come in, right? Yeah. Yeah, and
1: you know, he's so he seems to be more up for that than ever collaborations and and sort of widening the net and just. Seeing, just letting the music lead you to wherever it might take you, mm. which is really what it's all about, because in the end, that's all we have sometimes.
0: We'll return to Monk's Road Social a bit later on. I want to yeah. go right back to the beginning, this love of music, where it comes from. You mentioned Paul Weller meeting 83. Were you
1: aware of the jam? I actually grew up in a place called King's Lynn in Norfolk, although I was born in Scotland. Both my parents, a big time into music. My mum was a kind of part-time singer, jazz singer occasionally. My dad was a really good uh, singer in the car of uh, of Perry Como and Matt Monroe, and then my two elder sisters, ten years and older than me um sort of experienced the whole of the sixties so i was although I was only little i I discovered the kind of the dance set up in the in their bedroom with uh, all the Beatles singles lots of backwhacking David the whole sixties experience was was in my mind, and then obviously for my own generation it was obviously Mark Bowden was a massive thing Bowie so fast forward to about nineteen seventy seven my father dies, and we're going to go and live in Australia, me and my mum. And just as we're about to leave Kings Lynn, by this time Punk is broken, and I'm well aware of it and everything. Uh, I see an advert, and we, there were never any gigs in Norfolk, but there was this. There was this place called West Westwanton Pavilion, and there was a there was a poster up in Kings Lynn, and it said the T Rex and the Damned, and it was T Rex's last ever tour, and the Damned told them and I moved to Australia two weeks before that. <laughs> I couldn't <laughs> believe it. So I'd already got you know Punk. Had already been a big thing for me. I mean, the Kingsland was a Northern Soul town where I grew up, you know. So Soul music, and there's a place called the Soul Bowl, which was in import record shop. And all my friends used to go in the, to, and I was just too young to go to those things, but I was aware of it, and it was a big part of my life. But then Pan comes along, and the first single that anybody could get, I think, was, was "New Rose" by the Dand. That was the one. So I was in then, and so I went to Australia, and. I mean it was a massive thing. Flying into Sydney was like going from from Kings Lynn in nineteen seventy seven was like going from black and white to colour. My whole life changed. I looked at it and I thought and so so many things were happening to me on an emotional level and all sorts. But this point i was totally hooked with music so i was staying in a little flat with my sister she was learning to play guitar she had a little spanish guitar lying about with a copy of the eagles made easy and she went off to work and by the time they came back i'd learned that whole thing and this is the first time i'd ever picked up a guitar wow wow. it just came to me real simple and of course, you know, because I love Mark Bowen songs, they were really simple to play as well. So I was straight off on sort of hot love and Deborah, because they only need two chords, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and uh so I was I was deeply and then I'd start going to these import record shops in Sydney. There's one called Anthem Records, and I saw in the city. So i heard of the jam, because I was an avid reader of of Melody Maker and and NME, which in those days, they were the Bible. I mean, they were selling 200,000, 300,000 copies a week. And some of the writers in there were much better than the music they were writing about because they would turn you on to like, you know, people like Charles Saul Murray, Nick Kent. They would turn you on to kind of existential poets and writers and philosophers. They would talk about politics and they would bring this all into an article on, I don't know, the Comsat Angels or something. You know what I mean? It was really, like, educational. So it was music that politicized me as well. But anyway, so I bought all those albums. I bought all the buzzcocks, the jam, everything. And the jam in particular affected me because I'd already gotten into Down by the Jetty by Dr. Feelgood, and there was something in there that really reminded me of that kind of energy, that guitar playing. And there was also something that really struck me. I think it was away from the numbers was the tune, which I thought – had a kind of romanticism that I wasn't hearing anywhere else in any punk tunes particularly because everybody was trying to be hard and sort of it was year zero and there was a Stalinist approach to anything that had gone before. All was obviously different. There was something in that tune that alerted me to something. I mean, obviously, I loved In The City and all the kind of like, you know, the fast stuff, but there was something in that tune which, which rang a bell. So I just, from that moment on, really, amongst a lot of other things, I, I just bought everything that came out, every single, every album. So from, right from the in, really. 77. I was in
0: there's a difference between you can strum away on a guitar and learning the art of songwriting and being able to sing having a voice I mean thank goodness for that right when you look at your albums and I know this has evolved over time but there are so many instruments that you play it's not just the guitar there are keys drums there's bass there's percussion on so many of your songs as well so are you one of those people that just wants to learn 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 how to or are you just happy to have a go how does it work I'm
1: just not very good at paying other musicians <laughs> <laughs> just tight. <laughs> tight that's it Scottish, you see, born in Scotland. No, let's <laughs> not indulge in national stereotypes. It's not true that. Well, I have drummed on a couple of things, but I wouldn't call myself a drummer. People who know me would laugh at me. At but that. there's a drum kit right behind you. I, I know, I know. I like to have a bash. I like to have a bash. I don't know. I'm, I'm a I'm a ham-fisted piano player, but I can get away with it. I love playing bass. I love playing bass with Paul because I just like playing bass. Uh, so yeah, you know, just as you go along, you know, I'm. It's like in the studio as as I went. Through my journey of sort of making records, I got more and more into like learning about everything that's going on because I became frustrated with handing over at a certain point to somebody else and wondering why the sound got fucked up. What happened? So I got it to be a little bit technical as well. Even with Paul in the in Star Council records, I remember I was the one that was using the sampler and the Akai very early on. In fact, I think I'm credited as the Akai kid on something. <laughs> you know, because I just wanted to learn how these things work. I'm, a, I'm you know, I'm a secretly I'm a bit of a nerd. So um, maybe not so secretly. So that's what it is. P- partly a control freak, and partly just just interested in it.
0: It's also that ownership thing, isn't it? Because I think your name's on the uh, something, you know, the solo stuff. Your name's definitely on them, but yeah, the Blow Monkeys—that's that's your product. You want to own it, and so when you create this music and it comes out sounding different to how you heard it or your expectation, it must be hugely frustrating, right?
1: Yeah, it can be, you know. And you know, especially early on, I I, was—I couldn't figure out what was going on. Why were the demos better that we made than sometimes the records? And of course, it was the '80s production values that we were kind of involved in which kind of took over, you know, for a while that really bugged me, but I've sort of come to terms with it now. In fact, you know, it's all part of the journey. So it's, yeah, it's just a learning curve really.
0: I found a quote in research from Paul Weller and the fact that he'd once said to you, when we talk about playing, he once said to you, you've got no reputation as a guitar player, but you're fucking brilliant.
1: He did say that to me once. I don't know about the fucking brilliant bit. I might've made that up. Um, But, but, um, he he, it's true because we used to, you know, we used to play because we, we we lived not far from each other in West London at some point in the mid eighties, and our kids grew up together, and we go on holiday together, so we were pretty close. And the guitars would come out, and there were kind of relaxed moments. And I think um he says then that you know, I remember one time I was playing the song called Fly. From Ormod Cons. It's got quite a tricky guitar part. <laughs> I think just to impress him. Really. And uh, he was like, oh yeah, yeah, that's good. So it was um, it was just something that happened, you know, and and then and then he asked me to go and play on. I mean, the first thing I actually played guitar on, I think, was Into Tomorrow, just a rhythm guitar, really, didn't need me. But I mean, it was, I was honored to to sort of play on it. And, um, and then from then on, you know, started playing on, on a few more. I mean, obviously, I, I think he when I was producing DC Lee's album, Slam Slam, I was playing quite a bit of guitar and things like that. And he flopped it a little bit it, through my own fault, really. I mean, I was, it was like in the eighties, I would just sort of like ponce about, you know, on telly. That's what I thought you did, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and so people had the idea. So when I went to do solo things very early on in the nineties, just acoustic guitar, I think people were kind of like, Oh, you can actually play. Oh, it's not bad, you know, sort of condescending, but. Because I'd sort of probably been my own worst enemy sometimes in the 80s in that way. You know, I was far too good looking as well. So it just it was, it went against me. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, also, I think there's a period with Paul. If you discovered Paul like midway through the Style Council, you wouldn't have realized he was a guitar player. Like, he seemed to shy away from that a little bit. And maybe that was mirroring what he saw you doing and thinking, I'll, I'll give this a go as well.
1: I don't know if i mirrored anything. I'm, but I think I do remember him falling out of love with playing the guitar at a certain point. Yeah, that was definitely true. And that was part of the rediscovery that he had, you know, in the early 90s, was just playing guitar again. I think that was an end for him, you know, to fall in love with playing guitar again. Because he was such, I mean, I talked about those early jam records, you know, when I was learning to play guitar, I had this stereo at home in my little flat with my mum, where I could plug in this cheap guitar I had halfway, and I could sort of play along in the headphones to the record that was on. I'd found some sort of weird kind of space, liminal space between stereo and mono that I didn't know existed. So I could play along. And of course, I was playing along to like Buzzcocks and Clash and Jam. And Jam was like, oh, hang on, there's some chords in here. I mean, for, for those that want to know, the first time I'd ever learned to play like a major seventh chord was playing along to Down in the Tube Station at Midnight." Now, nobody in punk used major seven chords. Of course, you know, later when I realized I understand the lineage with Ray Davis and Pitt and Tansend and the kind of the writing. But at the time I was, I was really unaware of that. And so that's the first time I think, Oh, and that leads you into a whole other world because Paul knows his shit when it comes to chords and, it, you know, fire and skill. It wasn't pretending to be, I can't play.
0: I guess also that idea of, like you say, your love of Motown. Um, I know you're a huge fan of like Bacharach and David, which is, you know, linking in there with the lyrics. And so you get all that from the jam as well. Don't you? you get that heritage of where it's come from? Cause Paul didn't shy away from that, but also this amazing ability to write incredible stories through his songs must have just been inspiring as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, they were like, I suppose for me in particular, all my cons and setting suns were the ones that, because I was at a particular age, I had been in, I was in a particular place emotionally, I was learning, I was 12,000 miles away from what I considered to be home, that things like, and I've told him this, you know, the place I love, you know, or um, Burning Sky, or Little Boy Soldiers, Saturday's Kids, they were just little play for today's, weren't they? They were just perfect. And they hit me at a time when I was emotionally open, so they were particularly powerful for me those particular albums.
0: When was it that you found the confidence to take this out of your bedroom, out of home, plugging in halfway into that stereo, like you say there, and out on the streets? Because you started busking initially, was that right? Yeah, well,
1: that's what I'm going to say. I mean, it was almost the next day. Really? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There was a friend, there was a German guy called Helmer, a friend of my mum's and my sister's, who said who was busking at Circular Quay in Sydney. And I said, I'll come along. And he was doing things like Wild World, Cat Stevens, and some Dylan things and I just played along with him when we stood there and then at the end of it I said I, I sort of went into some weird kind of Tyrannosaurus Rex things which was you know I, I, I'm quite want to do after having a beer and then people stopped and sort of put money in the whatever it was the hat that we had down there and I think from that moment on I was hooked I probably was 16 then uh, and then I started just improvising it's pretty soon helmet stopped coming <laughs> <laughs> and it was just me and uh, I could never remember the song the words to songs at that time so I, I started making my own up and so it was it was really it was really just based on improvisation in front of people busking that became the drug you know that became oh somebody's put like a dollar in the hat there and you know there's something there. So that's when the, that's when the writing started. I mean it was awful Absolutely. I, I recorded an album once in, in Australia and thank God it never came out. As I was travelling through on my way out up in Darwin. It was awful. But um that's that's where that would have been the sort of beginning of it, yeah.
0: There comes a confidence in that though, that I mean, this is a young man who's, like you say, moved 12,000 miles away from the place he called home. You're going through this trauma of losing your father, right? Where did that confidence come from to, to perform in public when you, you've literally picked up the guitar the previous day? I
1: don't know. I think it was partly, I'll be honest with you, it was partly, well, what the hell am I, uh, I going to do with my life? And when I got to Australia, I took a year up. Uh, out of school because I'd had such a traumatic time. I hated school in England. You know, I ended up with some grammar school passing. I failed 11 plus, so I went to some god-awful boarding school for a year. And then I, went, I passed something called the 13 and went to a grammar school. And it was full of sadistic teachers who would cane you and would sort of make you stay behind and write out lines. It was just – and a lot of these guys had served in the Second World War, they were kind of remnants of that kind of Victorian almost kind of age. And So I just was like, I'm not going back to school. So when I went to Australia, I I tried to get jobs, but I got a job as a trainee pharmacist on the day that Elvis died. I remember that. And after two weeks, I was very good at getting the jobs. And then there would be this regular kind of payoff where they'd say, listen, mate, you're not cut out for this. And that would be uh, after two <laughs> weeks. So this kept happening. So I realized that, no, you're quite right. I'm not cut out for this. I can't seem to settle into any job. So I, I, I went back to school in Australia, a surf school in a place called Manly in North Sydney. And that was a completely different experience. Like the kids would come in dripping. They'd been surfing at five in the morning, you know, and they were, there was no uniform and you talk, they all smoked dope. And they called the teachers by their first names. And it was like, fucking. Now this is freedom after what I'd been in. So I actually did quite well. I took the equipment at the A-levels, and I got a scholarship and got into Sydney University. So I went to Sydney University, and after two weeks, my grant arrived. You know, it was the only time in my life I'd ever had any money. So I went straight out and bought a Rickenbacker and an amp and left university. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Because I spent all my money on a blue Rickenbacker. Thank you, Paul. That's your fault. And that was it, really. So, yeah. What was the question? <laughs> yeah, the basking you know,
0: was paying back the grant. Yeah,
1: yeah, basking all the time. So, so you know, what's the motivation to get out? And fear, fear, and this, and, and some sort of something inside that I just needed to express. I love the act of singing. I realised that I did enjoy singing, even though I couldn't really sing. There was something cathartic about just doing that. Like I said, I was a massive Mark Boland fan, and Mark Bolan had died around the same time. Somebody had bought me all the Tyrannosaurus Rex albums, and I dove deep into those four albums. And of course, as I'm learning to play guitar, acoustic, all those kind of weird songs, which were very simple, became a template for me as well. So, you know, and I sang them and and played them. So there was, I don't know, it was just a mixture of all that, Dan. I don't really know Mm. where that came from.
0: Paul's talks about in recent years feeling now that he's really in control of his voice. He really loves the way he sings, but when he listens back to older stuff. He's, he's not keen, whether it's the jam or the style council. And I get that you can hear that. Would you feel the same? It's that evolution and actually where you are now.
1: Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, I can't listen. To, I mean, well, there was a time that I couldn't listen to say like the first album, the for generation, or even the, uh, it's so mannered, you know? Um, but then. There's something I like about that too now i I can accept it's all part of the journey and yeah Paul I mean Paul's singing now is incredible he's got he's got this new range like the lower end. You know, the kind of things he was doing, even watching him the other week live, you know. And I'm the same in the sense that my voice has changed and you go with it because that's all part of the thing. But I laugh when I hear myself. I can hear the kind of influences and I can hear the the straining. But there's something about that as well, you know, which is, you know, it's all part of the journey.
0: So you come home, the Blow Monkeys are formed in 1981. Would that be right?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Was there a, a moment where you go... You know, now this is taking off. Now we're getting somewhere. I can see this is this is where I want it to be.
1: Getting signed was was a shock. You know, I mean, you know, I come back. I did the I did the thing that anyone does. I, I answered an ad in the back of the Melody Maker. It said, "Angular guitarist wanted." Fairy Bowie Boland. I thought, okay, Angular guitar is that somebody who's into fishing, or is that somebody that <laughs> has good cheapness? Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. I was in at, at that time in my life. I had both those attributes. So. <laughs> I went along with a fishing rod. No, I didn't. I went along with me, an old blue Rickenbacker, and uh, I got the job and I met Neville there. And within like a couple of kind of rehearsals, we, you know, I'd come in with a bunch of songs and a whole idea about what you know, Neville the sax player had met. So it was pretty obvious straight away that things were going to change and then we found Mick and things happened real quick. And I'd also, I'd seen this band in Australia called The Laughing Clowns. I just rewind quickly. In Australia, I went there thinking, right, I'm at the ends of the earth. What the hell? should be in London, all these punk bands. And then the first band I see in Australia were a band called The Saints, who were mind-blowing. Actually, they supported the jam. I've talked to Paul about this. They were unbelievable. They were pre-punk, like the Ramones were pre-punk in America. They were so powerful. And a band called The Boys Next Door, which was Nick Cave's first band. So I suddenly see, like, Ed Cooper and Nick Cave were the two figureheads of Australian music for me at that time. Pretty quickly, my mind changed. And I'd seen The Laughing Clans. And The Laughing Clans had this bebop drummer and they had this out of tune brass section and they had Ed Cooper playing like this punky guitar. And I thought, that's the blueprint. That's what I want. So that's what I had in mind when I went along and I met Neville and I sort of did the Trotsky thing. I got in the band and we got rid of most of the band and that was it. That was just me and Neville. <laughs> and, then, and then, and then I didn't know anybody. We didn't have any gigs. We didn't have anything. So it was two years of being on the dole, just trying to get a couple of gigs going. When you could get on the doll before, you, you can't do that now because they'll send a drone around and tell you that you need to go. And, you know, so it was, um, it was a safety net that provided a lot of bands wouldn't have been able to survive without that. I don't. You got signed
0: on the strength of what demos?
1: Well, yeah. And then we, we got a residency, at a place called the Moonlight Club. And I noticed that record companies started turning up. So that was it. That was the beginning of, but we were, you know, we weren't really ready, but anyway, we got signed 83 on a bunch of songs that I think Only Man for Mucha survived the cut to the first album. But yeah, so they just put us away. The guy that signed us left two weeks afterwards to go into rehab. And so we were left there. They didn't know what to do with us, but they thought there was something. So they put us in this studio called Nomis to rehearse, which is actually where I met Paul first because the jam had an office in Nomis. John would always be in there. I only saw the jam once weirdly, and that was, they did some kind of C&D festival on the back of a truck at Temple, was it Temple Station? And I I went around the corner and the jam were on, and I swear to God, I didn't even imagine this, they were playing a song called Desdemona, which was a band called John's Children, which was a Mark Bowman song. That's, I think that's the one and only time they'd ever did it. And that was it. I saw one, I think I saw that one song and they finished. I only <laughs> ever saw the one song. Yeah, so anyway, yeah, we got signed 83 after, you know, a few dark nights of the soul, just carrying on, carrying on. I was very, you know, particular. I used to say, right, well, we're going to all leave our job. Well, I didn't have a job. Everybody leave your jobs. We're going to rehearse. We're going to be a proper band. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. And I used to send out kind of weekly letters saying, this is what we're into, and this is what we're not into. In those days, it was important to be as against things as it was for things, you know. <laughs> I was just desperately trying to get better, really. Writing, 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 just trying to find something in my voice. And luckily, they believed in me.
0: So you mentioned Pete Wilson... Connected obviously with Paul and the the solid, what becomes the solid bond studio is involved in those first couple of albums as well. Also, actually, on Animal Magic, which I know you've revisited recently, was it last year with reissue and repackage? And we had like extras and all that kind of stuff. But on that, we had strings from John Mealing. He was obviously involved in part of the style council set up at 1.2. I loved Funeral Pyre,
1: the tune. I loved the noise, the energy. And I thought, who produced it? Oh, Pete Wilson. All right. So when the, but when I went to RCA, I said, they said, who do you want to produce? I said, Pete Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> of course, Funeral Pine really has nothing to do with Pete Wilson, it's to do with Paul. I mean, it's Paul's guitar sound, and then the drums are great. And then Pete's great, right? I love Pete, but that, that particular tune wasn't. And um, so, anyway, uh, a lot of the people that Pete used for the Star Council, he used for us because You know, same string section would come in if we needed a soprano player. We had Dick Morrissey, I think, and then there was John Mealing. Yeah, a lot of that kind of similar people were getting involved.
0: Guy Barker, who's been Guy Barker, the the,
1: the, the great Guy Barker. You know, and and because we were at Solid Bond, you know, there would be there was a big crossover. You know, years later, when I moved to Spain, I met a guy here called Dick Leahy who was a publisher and he published Tank Up Malice Morrison Leahy but he before he'd done that he worked as a T-boy for Fontana in that same building because that building used to be the Phillips building before it was Solid Bond that building had so much history you know Scott Walker did his and the Walker Brothers and you know all those tunes Dusty Springfield you know Kinks an amazing studio the history of it I didn't know that at the time that was in there but it's funny how it goes, isn't
0: it? Yeah, yeah. You mentioned earlier this love of politics and... we'll not go that far, then. <laughs> <laughs> well, this interest... <laughs> interest yeah. Interest in politics. This leads us in nicely to talking about Red Wedge. And I'm guessing this <laughs> is where your friendship with Paul like properly develops around this time as well?
1: Yeah, I'd say too. We were on nodding terms. And I remember like talking to him a couple of times when, when uh, we were recording Limping. But Red Wedge, I loved the idea. I wanted to do it, but I didn't want to just jump on. And luckily we'd had a hit... We'd had a hit with digging. So digging your scene was suddenly like exploding. And so I felt that, okay, we can do it now because, you know.
0: This is not going to kill us off by doing Red Wedge. We've been um, on top.
1: Well, not only that, but it's just that I didn't want to jump on some bandwagon and make it look like we were looking for kind of help. It, It came at the right time. We did the second Red Wedge tour. It was a real lovely atmosphere, actually. It was the first time where I'd been a part of anything where you were part of something, a collective that wasn't just about furthering your own career, which everybody was competitive in music and everybody was like, you know... And I was young and ambitious and competitive too. The Star Council kind of hosted the whole thing. You know, Kenny Wheeler was running it, John... Although I don't know whether they were very... I don't know if their politics were the same, I don't know. Paul definitely was. And so we'd use their backline and then we'd all get together and do something at the end of the night, move on up usually with everyone. And then Paul said, well, let's do that one of yours, with you know... Curtis, so I did him the chords and all that. I was really nervous, but it was um, it was just a lovely thing. And then I got to know Mick Talbot really well. And Mick, you know, I made friends on that tour, Roder de Car, people like that, the that I've kept for forty years special
0: i can't remember this came up on my socials the other day so neil sheesby stone foundation has the cover of nme may 1987 framed on his wall i don't know if you've ever seen this on anything on social media and it was the blow monkeys and curtis mayfield and it said banned by the beeb loved by the left was the headline on the front cover do you remember this
1: yeah well yeah of course i remember it yeah um curtis was playing i think i went to see curtis at dingles and I went backstage and found out where he was staying. This is the honest truth. I went up to his hotel in Tottenham Court Road. This would have been 1987. or might have been late '86. And I had this tune on cassette, celebrate, you know. And we're by this point, you know, we've toured America, we've had a hit, blah blah blah, I'm full of it. And I'm going in, and he's sitting on his bed in this little hotel room, and he's writing a song. I could see he's got. He's written a song. It's called Homeless, which came out later. He's sitting on the bed like some kind of guru. And he is a guru. And I'm sitting there. Thank you, Mr. Mayfield. Have a listen. So he puts headphones on. And why is this thing? And there's a knock at the door. Open the door It's Paul. <laughs> oh, all oh, right, mate. Yeah. Uh, Paul had come to see Curtis because Paul was getting Curtis to do some mixes on, uh, uh, well, what was it now? Uh, the Cost of Loving album. Yeah, that it? album. That album. That time. So it was me and Paul and Curtis sitting on the bed in his in Curtis's <laughs> hotel room.
0: That's like you've both turned up to see the same girl or something at the same time. I know, I know. It's, it's like well, a I know it was slightly
1: embarrassing, but but it was funny as well. <laughs> anyway, I got to work with Curtis and I'm in the studio and I'm singing right in front of him. He's like there, two feet away, and I'm doing my Curtis Mayfield impression. Air for butter set, you know, and I'm thinking, fucking hell. This is unreal, you know, part of me thinking that. And the other part is like, just keep it together and do it. So we were doing the, we were doing the, the thing live record comes out and it gets banned because the week of release. There was an election called, she called an election. She did this deliberately, I know this. And so the Radio 1 wouldn't playlist it. So the record gets the number 41, I think, which means you just can't get on top of the pops. I mean, we did plenty of other things. He he came and played at the Hampstead Odeon with us, and oh, that was fantastic, playing Superfly on stage with him, and and we went to Montreux. One of the loveliest people, like all the true, true, true greats, he was very kind of modest, you know? Like, he was channeling something very special, and he didn't need to impress anyone. Picked up his guitar once, tried to play it, and for any of those muses out there, he tuned the whole thing to open F-sharp, which is all the black notes on the piano. That's how he got his sound. That sound that you hear on the impressions, just kind of flickering, kind of hammering, beautiful kind of crystalline sound. That's how you do it, F-sharp. There you go, kids. Open
0: that (laughs) shop. So, Red Wedge, Billy Bragg's been on the podcast, you know, Anna Joy David, Rhoda, you mentioned, Junior's been on the podcast. If you look back on Red Wedge, what are your thoughts on what it achieves? And you've probably talked to Paul about this, I'm sure, but what's in your head?
1: Well, I thought it was about haircuts. I I joined it because I had a wedge and I thought (laughs) that was Billy's thing. I think I was, uh, you know, (laughs) (laughs) what did I think it achieved? Listen, like I said to you before, I think it was music that politicized me. It was music that first made me think about where do I stand in this? What do I believe in? What do I want to be part of? How do I see society? What's important? And, okay, um, so Paul and Strummer, like I said, some of those journalists that, 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 that were writing about, especially during the time when Neil Spencer was kind of editor at the enemy, really led me into places that opened my mind. That's all it was, really. And, and you've got to remember that at the time, it was years and years and this endless, grueling era of Thatcherism, which had decimated working-class communities, decimated the manufacturing base of the UK. We're still paying the price for that. The kind of mantra of the market will decide, you know, the the kind of way things have gone and still are going, that's where the seeds of that were during that Reagan-Thatcher era. And I felt on a kind of spiritual level that it was counter- to kind of human nature that it was about survival of the fittest no such thing as society blah 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 this to me felt like contrary to what I had found to be my experiences in life that altruism pays off that we are all connected and interconnected and that these values are really important uh, and so that's what I took from it I went along to the, to the meetings in the Houses of Parliament and sat inside the Shadow Cabinet with Neil Kinnock, you know, David Blunkett and all these. And there was this guy circling behind us, this kind of Machiavellian geezer who turns out to be Peter Manderson, who I'm sure <laughs> didn't approve, you know. And, you know, and, I, and, you know, we went up to Liverpool and you met old Degsy, you know, Derek Hatton. who was a bigger rock star than anyone I'd ever met, you know. So there were, there were things that I didn't like about it. And in the end, what did it achieve? I don't know what it would achieve would, would be that anybody like me when I was younger who might have looked at it and thought, this has got me interested in, in participation and great friends I made.
0: And like you say, those friendships last to this day. And towards the end of the Style Council, you start working with Paul and collaborating with Paul on some of the Style Council stuff. And we should talk about the house period because that seems like a big passion point for both of you at that time. You were working on Slam Slam, DC Lee's projects, working with Paul on that as well. So you suddenly come together to collaborate.
1: Yeah. I mean, the house thing, I, I shared... A flat with a, with a guy called Hector, who was a DJ at the Wag Club, but had previously been a DJ at, in Northern Soul clubs up in Derby, came there. And when we toured America, he gave me this list of records to go and get at this specific record shop in Chicago '86. So I go and get them all, and I start to listen. You know, early Marshall Jefferson things like that. Oh wow, man, man! You know, there's something really there's something really good about this. These are like homemade records that are trying to sound like Philly kind of soul records, but they've got this kind of, but obviously they're made at home on the late times. And then there's a guy, and then Marco, Marco Nelson, who become part of our friendship circle and started to really go on about house music as well. And I think we all kind of coalesced at the same time when we were inspired by this. But because I'm the nerd, I learned how to do it. So I've got these, I've got a million cables of MIDI cables and a, and a sampler and a keyboard, and I'm just playing at home and I make up weight. And I think, uh, oh, you know, well, okay. So this isn't a blood monkeys thing. I'll do it solo single. And I said to the record company, just give me two days. I'm going to do a solo single. And at this point, they said, yeah, all right. Then. And I first recorded it actually with Sam Bran, the singer Sam Brand. and her, her record, her management said, we don't think it's right for us.
0: Oh it's my f- goodness, me. So what, is there a version of that kicking around somewhere still?
1: Probably Sam Brand didn't do wait, but she did stop. <laughs> 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 and then, uh, so, but, and then Paolo Hewitt. Dear old who was also at that point part of the same friendship circle, said, listen, Kim Mazzell's in turn, why don't you get her one? That was just it. That was really just magic. So it happened very quickly. I had this chin. And of course, the record company heard it and it's and they put it out 12 inches and it started to blow up. So it became a single and it went down on a blow monkey's album because they wanted to sell the blow monkey's album. So I was, you know, I got a little bit of a head start in there. But Paul's doing Promise land and things like that with Brendan. And I'm sort of i just sort of hanging around. I'm helping with the kind of technical shit, I think, at this point, archives. And actually, you know what? Not many people know this, but Paul plays bass on weight because he came in while I was doing it. Because at this point, I think there was tension. It was coming towards the end of the Star council. And I don't think he was very happy. You know, in fact, I know he wasn't very happy. And there was, and he did come down the studio. And we we used to work a lot down at Goldwater Road, the townhouse. And he came in there. And he was sitting there and we were playing and I was doing weight and he said, there's no bass on it. I said, no, I haven't done it yet. So the the Juno was there and he just played this bass line, which actually I think was a, it was very similar actually to something by 10 City, (laughs) but it perfectly worked. It was perfect. And so I said, oh, cheers, man. That's brilliant. You know? And so that's how, that kind of, that's how it kind of went. You know, you just started hanging around. So I started hanging around a bit more when he was doing things and I'd pick up This instrument or that instrument or make small suggestions. I think he tweaked that and said, do, you know, have a go at doing these albums, Slam Slam. I think if he's honest at that point, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't, although I love some of that. I sure as sure is a great tune and there was uh, some beautiful things on it. He wasn't really happy personally or musically at that point, you know, I would say.
0: You become part of the Style Council, the honorary, an honorary Style Council for those last few dates. So Japan, and we'll, we'll oh, yeah. talk more about Japan and how important that has been for you and your solo career in a sec. We also play the the final day, the Style Council, the Royal Albert Hall.
1: Yeah, he, he asked me to play those, and the, the, the Albert Hall was fun. I loved it. I mean, it's gone down in, as a little bit of and kind of like, they were tearing up programmes, they were booing a bit. I mean, this is what I mean about not giving your audience what they want. I totally respect that. It was such fun. Amazing band. I mean, I don't, Steve White wasn't playing. I remember that Steve wasn't playing, but there was like Guy Barker, Jacko was in it. Omar came and did something in the middle of it. Some sort of like, you know, beatbox thing that I remember flummoxed John Weller. What's going on there? (laughs) Uh, and then there was like Marco was dancing with D. And then I did a couple of tunes. We didn't come see you, mate. So I just, but I loved it. I loved it. And Paul was, uh, you know, Paul only sang on about half the songs as I, as I recall, but it was brilliant. And, uh, but you know, I, I think you could see that, um, yeah, there were one or two in the audience that didn't get what they expected, you
0: know. I think it wasn't helped by the fact that Style Council just released the Greatest Hits album, right? And they, they were possibly thinking they were going to get that. But like you say, Paul's always done what he feels is right for him and his career and his music as much as, you know, he appreciates us as fans and loves us as fans, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, you got to remember that I think the jam audience could be quite scary, quite kind of male, kind of possibly quite conservative, some of them. And I think he wanted to escape that. So the biggest move was from there to the star council that was the one that pissed a lot of people off and that Mm. was so brave and he's just carried on doing that carried on following that that voice inside that says this is where i should be i think that's all part of this kind of modernist philosophy that encompasses almost everything in his world this kind of going forward new keep going forward keep going forward don't get caught in in nostalgia Don't even look backwards, although, you know, occasionally he will, but now I think, but, you know, it's a It's it's always being in the moment, always going with what's happening here and now, new. I respect that. You know, working with Paul... There were a few things that I really picked up. I think when he started to hang about with us at the end of the eighties, he, he, he was a little bit inspired by the energy that we were doing. He'd forgotten about that because it got a bit stale for him. But then when he starts again and I'm hanging about with him, I'm noticing these things, this incredible attention to detail, this work ethic about not letting anything, if there's half a, half a song there, we're going to finish that. We're going to make, we're going to take that all the way. We're going to finish it, finish things, attention to detail. You know, making it sound great on that speaker, but also on that speaker. and it, All these little things, you know, that um, they're kind of all inspiring.
0: The connections continue with Paul and his solo career. So that first solo album, Wildwood, Stanley Road, you're hanging out a lot. I think you just mentioned the fact that you'd moved closely together. You've just both had kids around the same time. Would that be right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was involved on the, on the first solo album. Uh, well, the first single, actually, he said he's doing this This Into Tomorrow. Into Tomorrow was like, oh, okay, that's the beginning. That's the beginning of something new I could see. First, first of all, he's playing the guitar again. I mean, I love that song. It's just something so stripped back. It was so out of... What else was going on? It wasn't like anything else. There was this kind of stripped back honesty to it. And then I moved out of London and I moved up to Oxfordshire. And it just so happens that I was like very close to the manor, which is where Paul started to record a lot. So again, I'm I'm in the manor quite a lot just because my mate is around the corner. You're just picking up, you know, I picked up a bass. I played on Cosmos. Somebody clocked it said, oh, you know, play a bit more bass, play a bit more this and that. It was just whatever was hanging about. You'd pick it up and play it, you know. But you could see almost on a daily basis that something Paul was getting inspired again, almost like like a child, you know, lost in music again. I mean there were things going on in his personal life that were very difficult. I could see that. But the music was leading him to he was he was allowing the music to, to flow and overtake him again. And that was beginning to be reflected. And he did it the old fashioned way by playing live again. John saying, right, get out of there and play live again. That's all you can do.
0: The manor, famously, is this or was this residential studio? The fact that you're living down there—were you staying over, or are you popping back home again after after sometimes these sessions?
1: I well, I mean, I was, at this point in my life, I'm still drinking, so there were times when I was staying over <laughs> for quite a few days. Sometimes, very nice it was as well. I've got to say, it's a lovely place, you know. Full-size snooker table. Now, I'm quite a quite keen snooker player, so after a few drinks, although I would sometimes lose quite a bit of money to John and Kenny on the tour bus playing cards i would always make it up later playing snooper <laughs> brilliant <laughs> so yeah
0: around this time you start playing live with the band as well but this ties in as well with your first solo album realms of gold which is yeah. a, a thing of beauty my friend honestly it's such a brilliant album and again that came from the connection i talked about the, the japanese connection paul's first solo album was financed by pony canyon I'm right yeah. thinking that same connection Enabled you to do your first solo album. Would that be right?
1: Yeah. Cause we've both been, we've both been to Japan a lot. It was successful there. There was a kind of, you know, and it's, at this point, they were, they were, they offered me the best deal I could get, which gave me enough to go and record the album. So I went, I went to this out of the studio in Leamington Spa and Paul very kindly came down for about two days, stayed in a hotel and just played on it on loads of stuff. Just put the track up and let him play. He picked up a bass we so he played piano. He did some backing vocals. So he ends up all over realms of gold. And I had played quite a bit on, well, his first album and Wildwood and Stanley World. He was always sacking his bass players. Uh, <laughs> and I think I was in Japan, done some gigs with the Blow Monkeys, maybe, or something, and, or maybe solo gigs. And then I was supporting him solo, acoustic. And then it wasn't Yolanda, it was someone else he was playing and uh, they weren't happy. And I think it was Steve White that I actually suggested to Paul get Robin, you know. So he sends me a fax when we get back to England, with all the chords and all the bits and pieces. And he just says at the end, I know you were, uh, you'll be fine. You've got a good feel. And I thought, oh, that'll do. Because uh, <laughs> I was like, fucking hell, how am I going to learn all these songs? But it was fire And I've never played bass with people live before. And I loved it. Because, first of all, you're playing with one of the great drummers of all time. And when Steve went and did the drum fill, I just took a little break and came back in afterwards because they were so good. And it was just nice to stand at the back and play with someone else. And of course, things were beginning to happen. I remember playing Changing Man and no one had ever heard it before. We played it live, you know, and instantly you could see, wow, this is, you know what I mean? It was just great fun, great fun. And for me on a personal level, that Weller family thing, I mean, I was good friends with a whole lot of them. You know, They make you feel very, very at home. John, in particular, I really got on well with. John, like my father, my father was an ex-boxer in the RAF. John was a very successful ex-boxer. So there were similarities. There were things that I could relate to, the things that we would talk about. And it just instinctively got on really well. So that whole experience was really immersive and and, and special. And for not just for me, but for my wife Michelle, who was good with friends with, with everyone as well.
0: I mean, like you say, Paul's all over the album. There's a wonderful track where the two of you. What song is? Have no roots, and it's just you and Paul. And your vocals, you're on guitar, percussion. I think Paul's on a twelve string. I think he plays a bit of bass, but it's a song created by the two of you, from what I can work out, right?
1: Yeah. He, yeah, he really he really bore something to that. He liked that one. It was uh yeah, he just it just came in and started suggesting BB ideas and played. In fact, he's a really good bass player. You know? Really good. I mean, I think that's how what Paul started out on. And he had one of those Hoffner kind of Paul McCartney type bases and just nailed it, first take. I mean like fool. And um yeah, there were things there were other things we did when we were just jamming as well. I remember we we played the... Uh, Neil Young's out on the weekend. We did a whole take of that somewhere. There are other things. So I played the the main fiddler, acoustic room. I was right at the beginning of my solo career. He came up and he did some Red Balloon, Tim Hardin, and we did uh, Life's a Gas, Mark Bowman. I think it's on film somewhere. I think Johnny Chandler's going to get it for me. Oh wow! You know there was a lot of lot of kind of. I remember saying to him, I really love these Scott Walker albums and there's this guy, Tim Harding, that he covers. And he said, oh, yeah, he told me about it. and And then he bought me this Tim Harding box set that came out. He was very generous that way. He bought me that, that kind of, bought records and we'd swap things like that, you know. It was uh, turning each other on to, to stuff that we hadn't heard, I guess. You know, I remember making up a tape and putting Nick Drake, Riverman on there. Which I think then became a big tune for him and the whole Nick Drake experience and stuff. And that kind of, there were times when we would just sit and just play two acoustics without saying much. I know that sounds kind of romantic and a bit of this and that, but really it was, it's the musical connection that is the real bond, the solid bond. I think he'd say that as well.
0: I would imagine also at the time for Paul and yourself, the drinking would have been a connection as well. And there's a track on the album called Ode to Bacchus, Bacchus being the roman god of wine and festivity i think is where yeah. there th- was all was a kind of drinking song right from the vine to the vein from the bloodstream to the brain only you can numb the pain
1: yeah <laughs> um from the great man to the vein you will say more than you mean and all that i mean yeah drink drink was uh you know both of us, i mean I mean I couldn't keep up with him to be honest when he was on it, but there, we, we were I had a good go though, you know I'm not saying I did <laughs> yeah and uh so you like
0: Carleen Anderson going to bed early like Carl no
1: <laughs> no way, you know, and it got out of hand sometimes you know because there was you know the the manner there were a couple of times when we were worse for wear, put it that way, and it got a bit edgy, I think I remember one time, you know like i said we, we both both our fathers were boxers. Although I'm not sure we were about to indulge in the kind of uh, what's the boxing thing anyway? It wasn't it wasn't by the rules, but um, Queensbury <laughs> rules, Queensbury. <laughs> um, I think I think it got a bit heated, you know, and we were face to face, and I'm like, going to fight and all that. And I remember Marco was there, little Marco, and uh, he stood between us with a with a fire poker from the fireplace, saying, "Don't make me use this." <laughs> and of course, it was ridiculous. And the next morning, it was it was all over and kisses and cuddles. I was you know I was also. There was part of me, I was immature. There was part of me that I was a little bit competitive as well, I think, when I think back to it. And um, in the end, I felt like I had to move away a little bit because that 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 whole network of pools and the fact they make you feel so comfortable and so loving. And it's such a thing, but it's like, can I grow in the shade of this great big tree? I was getting sort of tagged a little bit as a kind of weather acolyte, which is fine, but I needed to go and find myself a bit more. And kind of moving to Spain, it wasn't for that reason. I moved to Spain for a million other reasons of, of my family and everything else. But we kind of fell out of that everyday thing that we that we used to know each other. But there's such a deep friendship that whenever we do see each other, it's it's just the same. But I needed to definitely... I mean, I'm, I'll, take, I'll take the blame for this. It was my insecurity and immaturity, possibly, when I was younger that made me too competitive sometimes. So in order to kind of find myself as an artist i needed to kind of move away a little
0: bit we'll return to the blow monkeys in a sec i wanted to ask you one last question around that album which is my understanding there's a stack of stuff that from those sessions that exists that hasn't been released there was a lot of stuff you recorded that wasn't on that album would that be right
1: on which album sorry
0: the realms of gold
1: realms of gold yeah i I believe there is yeah gold knows where it is i probably got it on a dat or something somewhere.
0: (laughs) come on (laughs) why are you all not all organised with these archives I was having a similar conversation the other day about Paul Weller's stuff it's like come on why label it properly put it on the right place in the hard drive come on man
1: <laughs> yeah when I'm gone somebody else can do it <laughs> some other poor I'm working on a new one you know it's always like that it's always like that but yeah I should have a look I should have a look there might be a few tasty bits in there who knows I was so glad you know that the doing this album where the 80s was over so I said I remember thinking right, I said to John who was engineer John Rivers who actually engineered Ghost Town and recorded ghost out of the specials fantastic i said right john no eq no reverb no effects nothing i kind of relented a little bit but basically that's why it still sounds like it does because it can't possibly date because we didn't put anything on it you know Mm. Yeah, I was just keen to play acoustic guitar and get moving again. You
0: know, a little while after that, so the move to Spain we talked about. Um, there are yeah. other solo albums as well, uh, but yeah. then the Blow Monkeys return. So this is towards yeah. the end of two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight. We get Devil's Tavern. We then get a stream of albums. You know, very productive. It must yeah. have been great to get back together with the band, as much as your solo thing. I know is is a huge thing and a big passion of yours. Obviously, yeah. being back with the Blow Monkeys was an important moment for you.
1: Yeah, and look, I got to the point, and we all did, where he's got 18 years, right? And so the kids have left home, they're on their own, you know, they don't, it's not the same. So I fancy being in a band again. And of course, you know what we're going to do? There's a band that I've been in, and we've got this history. Are you, are you up for it? I said to them all, they were, but I said, look, the thing is we're going to make new albums. You know, that is, that's what we're going to do. We're not going to do the nostalgia circuit. Of course, we do sometimes play in those eighties festivals because they paid a rent for the rest of the tour. That wasn't what I wanted to do. So we, we have, you know, we're just about to release a new one again. We've made about seven or something since we got back together and I enjoy it more than ever. Because I know it's finite. I know the whole experience is finite. And the things that used to really bug me about it, you know, sound checks, hotels, travel, that all the things musicians moan about, bring it on. I love it now. I love all that. Cause you know what, Dan? I still haven't had to get a proper job. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> yeah. still well, you'd have
0: only lasted two weeks in those anyway. A, but- <laughs> yeah.
1: You, you're not cut out for this, mate. <laughs> it's, that's probably, that's, that's, <laughs> that's the headline. I love the whole thing about being a musician and doing what we do, especially in the world that we're in at the moment. It feels like. Ultimately, a good thing to do. I was thinking that the other day when I was watching Paul, and people were, I was looking around the crowd, and there was kind of like a moment's real euphoria. But what well, this is a great thing to bring into the world at this very troubled time. This is a good thing to be doing.
0: Yeah, Paul talks about it almost being still to him it's a noble profession and i think that's fair you know we missed live music so much during that period of lockdown when we couldn't experience it when you came back out and that first gig, i mean i was so emotional that first gig i was back in so i'm like God, yeah. oh, this is such an important thing for that connection with the music the community you're with or just seeing a band live for the first time all those things i don't know there's something about that live experience that's just so important
1: absolutely we missed that we know we it's a human need you know we, we saw that during covid set aside Celebrity culture and all that crap, you know. I mean, that's not what we're talking about. But the best moments is when a musician and an audience just become one, and it's not about the band up on stage. And they have a word for it in Spain called Duende, which is like when the magic enters a room, at a certain point, people lose themselves. And that happens to the musicians as well that are on stage. It's not about me and you. Something happens. You keep chasing that really, because that's, that's an essential human experience.
0: There must also be that thing where, like you say, this is not about the nostalgia, although there's links to that, but it's about creating new material. And Paul's talks about this with On Sunset and Fat Pop and continually wanting to get better and create, music that still connects is great. And when you get the reaction like you got for Journey to You, your last album, Blow Monkeys, which is, I mean, I don't know how you measure like the, the quality of work over a previous album and all that kind of stuff, but that felt like, to me, like one of the best things you've ever created. It was an, It's an incredible piece of work. There must be something about that. You're just like, oh my God, yes, yes. There's, this is why I do this. We're getting better. We're improving. We're releasing great, great music.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think Paul would say this. That you never know when that's going to come along. Half the thing, Dan, is stealth. Keep going. Keep going. Just keep working, because sometimes the, the the clouds will open, and you never know. And also, you never know in the moment either. Sometimes it's only in retrospect that you see that something is quite good, or it's not as good as you thought it was. So, you know, I can't. I couldn't tell. But just all I can say is that it's just through keeping working that sometimes you 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 know these things come round. It's not something that you can will into action
0: you know It also feels to me it's those connections that you've got those collaborators you're with so we talked about the monks road social projects at the beginning of this these wonderful collaborations with these such talented musicians that are part of that group but then you've got your blow monkeys and your bandmates there that you been with oh. for so many years as well but you're all inspiring each other aren't you
1: yeah it's like a family thing you know the richard who ran amongst approached me and said yeah can you what do you think do you can get this kind of collective thing together it was it wasn't really kind of a very solid idea but i just started to make a few phone calls and it, and, and you know songs i had kind of a lot of songs i mean i love to be honest with you the thrill of hearing other people sing my songs is that I'd still, that's the that. like well yeah and then the other people started to get a matt date and came in and i, I, hadn't, I didn't know matt uh, I mean, we've made an album together, actually. It's not this. Not out
0: yet. I heard it's that this is not out yet. Yeah. This is, is this, when no. is coming out?
1: <laughs> uh, well, hopefully next year, but Matt's got his own album to do, man, you know, and that's fair enough. He's doing his own thing. And then when that's done, well, it'll come out because it, yeah, that was really great fun. We did it five days up in, up in Anglesey, just the two of us, acoustic guitars facing each other. And sharing uh, wow. one mic actually, and it was great fun. So anyway, I met people like that, and of course, people that I knew. Mick Talbot is just a gem. Mick is like you know gold dust as a player, unbelievable. But as a person, even better because he just he's just so funny, just lovely to have about the place. I've known Mick for a long, long time. Very special dude. All these Jacko coming in, brilliant. And of course, Crispin and Ernie. And Crispin plays with Blow Monkeys now, but Crispin and Ernie are just like the best, you know, at what they do. It was easy for me. I just had to sort of, you know, sit back and be, I produced it, but I didn't really have to because all these guys know what they're doing. So it was, it was a lovely experience. We brought all sorts of people in, including people like Peter Capaldi, you know, who I'm just working on a new album with. And, you know, so I made some great new friends as well.
0: He lives just up the road from you there, doesn't he?
1: Well, He doesn't live here. He lives in, a, he lives in London, but where well, I live here, I'm in a, in the countryside, in the in the Finka. but where I live, I go for coffee in a in a local village, and that that coffee shop or coffee place is like Stella Street. Have you if you ever, if you've ever seen that, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know why, but you know, I met, I've met some really good yeah. friends. So <laughs> Alexi Sale, Peter Capaldi, youth, the producer, youth, you know, who's got a studio around the corner for me, which has been dead handy, and I love, another very lovely and generous guy. So slowly, it kind of opened
0: up. And PP Arnold was another one who's been on the podcast. Pat oh, was round the corner from you at one point, right?
1: Pat was around the corner. Well, yeah, I, I went to some party and inevitably I started playing some songs. And somebody said, Oh, P. Piano's over there in the corner. So I started playing some Curtis songs and we just started singing together. She says, Do you know, first guy is the deepest? I went, No. She said, oh, One, two, three, four, and the win. And I'm like, Oh, God. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I jammed it and then a light bulb went on in my head and I thought, Do you want to fancy making an album? So we made an album together. It was like a folk soul album, if you, know, if you know we did it down in the studio on the coast. She's proper. I mean proper A-list singer, Pat. She's she's really like Southern Baptist Church thing going, you know, it's just it's proper. It was an honor. And
0: what a story. I mean, she was a, a terrific guest on the podcast as well. At the time of recording of this podcast, we are just days away from the release of Time Storm Greatest Hits Volume 2 from the Blow Monkeys when the podcast out the the album would have just been released on the Friday just come right like I say you are always pushing forward but this is a chance to look back at from from that regrouping from when the band came back together right yeah
1: we're doing a new record at the moment which will be out next May and the label that we're doing it with um, called lovely label called last night from Glasgow he said listen we should do a compilation of all the stuff you've done since you know we formed so I I said okay you know the let's do that and it's a chance to sort of pause and i mean it's cheekily called greatest hits volume two but you know never mind yeah i'm proud of it i'm really proud of it i actually think we've done all right since we reformed and we did what i wanted which was move forward keep making records
0: the ridiculous thing to me as a paul weller fan is the fact that this time period that we're talking about is from when he released 22 dreams 2008 that was when you were back with the blow monkeys right and to me I mean, this must feel worse for you, but for me, this, this feels like this was yesterday. This is, uh, you know what I mean? This was no time at all, but here we are actually. That's a massive amount of time that's passed from that period. And so much has obviously happened, but it just feels like, like in a blink of an eye, that time has gone, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. I guess it time speeds up as you get older. And there is also the specter of what could we say? The end at some point, you know, it's going to end. And therefore there's a kind of. There's, there is a, there's a, something else that enters the room and you, and you start to think, well, I, so much I want to do, so many little ideas that, I, that I'd like to kind of explore, I want to carry on doing that. Maybe I've got to think about the work-life balance a bit more, maybe I should get out a bit more. But there is something about, uh, you know that, that, that there's less time left than what's gone before and that does kind of change the perspective about how you make records, how you work. <laughs> Not just records, you know. What can you tell us about the
0: album that's coming out next year then?
1: Like a lot of stuff, it's a a reaction to the last one. Journey to You was, in a sense, a kind of quintessential blow-monkeys. It had big strings. It was quite orchestral. It's quite large, you know. So this is the opposite. That's all I can say, really. It's got, you know, it's bass, drums, guitar, one saxophone, voice, kind of raw and dry and... I'm excited about it actually because I'm just I'm just in the middle of mixing it, nearly finished it, so I think it's going to be
0: all right. <laughs> okay. And what about Monk's Road Social? Is there more to come? Because the Rise Up singing album was again, it just keeps building and building and building. With these, there were yeah. lots more original songs on that yeah. as well. It's a terrific project, and we yeah, we have the Weller connections, like you talk about. Leah Weller was on on the album. Yeah, Leah. Yeah,
1: yeah, Leah. Great, great singer. Lovely. I can't believe it. She's singing. I remember when she was born. Um... Muxford is in abeyance at the moment, but I do believe that there will be another one. I think I think it's just I've been so busy and uh, I haven't spoken to each for a little while, but I, I think it's going to be an ongoing thing for sure. Yeah,
0: at some point there's got to be a live show of that connecting. I don't know how you make that happen, but that's got to be a
1: thing. <laughs> I would love that. I would love that. You know, we can all uh, just well. The, the thing I say, plant your egos at the door, but no one's got egos in that lot. That's what's really good about it. It's not like that. There is a kind of it is a band of music and that's quite rare, so it'd be lovely to do a show. I mean, we nearly did one before, but then Covid came along, so I think we'll do another
0: one. Yeah, well, fingers crossed. Hey, Robert, this has been honestly such a joy hearing your stories, your connections with Mr. Weller.
1: He's a very special dude, people don't always pick up. First of all, he's very funny. You're going to interview him eventually, aren't you? You
0: mentioned yes. this podcast to him in Madrid, right?
1: Uh, yeah, but in passing, he knows all about it, don't worry about that. <laughs> so, um An incredible, incredible songwriter. Kind of unparalleled, really, in some ways, the journey that he's taken. So, you know, I'm I'm more than happy to speak in his honor because, you know, it's been very influential on me. Especially, like I said, when I was emotionally open as a teenager, those things kind of really stay with you. I'm glad I spoke to you. I know it took a little while uh, and I was kind of... There were trepidations because I didn't. Want, I, I felt like I didn't want to betray a friendship, if you know what I mean. But uh, if there's anything that I might have done, just cut it out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Before we started recording this podcast, we were saying that we we need some balance on this because everybody has been very, very praising of Mr. Weller. <laughs> oh, no, listen, he can be a right difficult
1: bugger. You know? He really can. He can be, yeah, especially when he's, you know, he can be, But I don't know anymore. I think we've all grown up. But like I said, that was partly me as well. Insecurity, competitiveness, you know, all that, it would more than partly me. So, you yeah. no, I love the guy. Love it.
0: Two final questions for you. You're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the Jam, the Star Council, or solo. What would you go with? Oh, blindly.
1: If it was the Star Council, it would be It All Came to Pieces in My Hands.
0: Oh, I love that song.
1: Which I love And if it was solo, it would be No Tears to Cry. As we're going back to kind of the place where the place. The place I love, which is where where it really all began for me, I would say that "Strange Town" by the Jam is the perfect song. I mean, I, th- I think it's I think it's just lyrically and in, in, in every way, it just it, it just hit me. I love singles, right? And the Jam were a great singles band.
0: Yes, of course, that was a standalone single, right?
1: Yeah, it was a standalone single. And uh, I think I think Butterfly Collector might be on the B side. Except it's around the band, at the time of kind of all mod cons. But Strange Town would be you know if you want one today, tomorrow it would be different. It might be Burning Sky or or, or Little Boy Soldiers or even I don't know, something from Wildwood. You know, I'd love Wildwood itself, the song. But today, it's phase
0: time. Final question. So the purpose of this podcast is to meet lovely people like yourself who've had these connections with Mr. Weller to hear your story. But the reason I created this podcast, Robert, was because it was my one big regret from giving up my career as a radio presenter that I never got to interview Paul Weller. So I created a podcast to make that happen.
1: If it happens,
0: what should I ask him?
1: Oh, blimey. You could say, uh, what do you think happens when we die? <laughs> That's a big question. He is a very spiritual character, I gather. Right? Well, you could you could shorten that and say is God a mod. <laughs> I mean, it's the same thing.
0: I know that you've to- spoken to him about mod and modernism, what that means to him. Is it? I yes. guess it's linked to the spirituality thing as well. Maybe I don't know, but you've had that conversation in a way, right?
1: Oh, often, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I'm fascinated because you know. No offence, but his definition of mod is not a secret affair or one of those bands. It's like it encompasses everything. It's fascinating. I said he should do a book one day. His modernism, his philosophy of, of that is, is far wider than, uh, than, than you would ever know. So, yeah, that's why I think a question like that would be perfect for him.
0: <laughs> Robert, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it.
1: Dan, thank you. Good luck with your uh, Holy Grail.
0: Well, I told you it would be pretty special. What a blast. Dr. Robert, Robert Howard from the Blow Monkeys on the podcast. Incredible stuff. If you want to find out more, you can go to my website, paulwellafampodcast.com. You'll find details about the Blow Monkeys, Time Storm, Greatest Hits Volume 2, info on the Style Council live in Japan, Paul Weller Solo, Slam Slam that 1994 debut solo album, Realms of Gold from Dr. Robert, and plenty more since then as well. Plus, of course, music from the Blow Monkeys and Monk's Road Social, all on my website, paulwellafanpodcast.com. And whilst you're there, do head into my store. You can find official merchandise for the podcast. Plus, if you fancy it, get yourself a virtual coffee as well. Doing exactly that this week. Thank you, Grant. Hello to Colin and Jennifer Marsh, who say we love the podcast. Listening to the stories, the connections, the insider knowledge as a great dimensions of being a Weller fan. Thanks, Dan. Well, thank you, Colin and Jennifer. Hello to Alex McLaughlin, who says the Carleen Anderson episode was fantastic. I listened to it in the car, got so absorbed that I missed my cutoff on the way to a meeting. <laughs> Thank you, Alex. Hello to Neil, who says, loving your work, Dan. I'm a longtime Weller fan, and your contributions have brought back so many wonderful memories. I was probably a bit late to the party, and I'm slowly working my way through the episodes. Up to number AC8 now. Keep up the good work. Well, that's a great thing, Neil. You can join at any time. Hello to Vince Bicarino, says, really enjoyed the Carleen Anderson pod. Keep up the good work, Dan. Hello to Marcin Morrow. Thanks to you for your virtual coffee. Hello, Brian G. Hello, Ewan, who says, cheers, Dan. The interview with Carleen was Brilliant. Long hopes for. Great job. Thanks a lot. Hello to Mike Steer. Thank you to you for your virtual coffee. Hello to Sarah Kane. Hi, Sarah. If you want to get involved on the next episode, you can dive into my store, Paulwellafanpodcast.com. Now, if you do anything after listening to this podcast, make sure you click share on your social media channels, spread the word, Dr. Robert on the podcast. Tell your friends, make sure they listen. You can get in touch on Twitter or X or whatever it's called this week. It's at Weller Pod or on Facebook, Instagram and threads to search for Paul Weller Podcast. And coming up this coming Friday, 3rd of November, a very special celebration, the 45th anniversary of All Mod Cons from the Jam, a little treat for you with an extra episode. Okay. So make sure you check out the podcast this coming Friday, 3rd of November, as we celebrate 45 years of All Mod Cons with All Mod Cons the original tribute to The Jam. Follow, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, and more. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.